Okay, so this week we are traveling from Eretz Yisrael, from the land of Israel, which was the center of Jewish life, to Babel, to Babylonia. What happened was, already towards the end of the Second Temple period, and then accentuated after that, was the Jews migrated towards Babylonia, and they founded two yeshivas, Surah and Pumpadisa. So these are the two yeshivas where most of the Torah learning is happening, and eventually the Talmud Yerushalmi, the, Bab- the, the Palestinian Talmud, the Yerushalmi Talmud, that is concluded, and once that, that concluded, as, as written up, it's done, it's, it's finished, most of Jewish life and Jewish learning is taking place in Babel, in these two places. So where is Babel? So if you look on the first page of the Mar Makomos, there, that is a, uh, a screenshot I took of Iraq and, and Israel, and I put in to get from um, Fallujah, which would maybe known to us from the some of those heavy battles there in 2008, 2009, during the surge that was in Iraq, the war in Iraq. That was a place. That was where the yeshivas were. I put in how to get from there to Yerushalayim. So again, this is going on modern day roads. I first put in can I bike the route? Apparently, you can't bike the route. Just know that if anyone wants to travel from Iraq to Yerushalayim, you're not going to be able to bike it, and I don't recommend walking it. In fact, Google Maps gave a little a little note that it's a little it's a dangerous route. But if you want to drive it, so to go from there, you tour the road. It seems like you, you enter Israel somewhere in Jordan, and you cut down to Yerushalayim. It takes 11 hours and 24 minutes. It's 1,003 kilometers, which is about 600 miles. To put that in perspective, when I drove last year from Chicago, where I lived, in Evanston, Illinois. To Passaic, New Jersey, it was longer than that. It was 800 miles. It took about 13 hours. Though with kids, it took like 25 hours. But that's a different story. So just to put it in perspective, when you think about, you know, just to think about, first of all, the proximity of Iraq and whatever happened there during, during the Gulf War, we know, to Israel, it's not very far. So this was basically, this route was traveled back and forth. The people in Israel going, going to Bubble, the people in Bubble going to Israel. And the Bible is full of, oh, when Ravdimi, for instance, comes up from Bubble. Oh, and this person showed up from Israel. People are constantly traveling back and forth, but the center of Jewish life ends up migrating towards Babel, and this is where it was. So just, Babli then is concluded, and from about the time the Babli concluded, about the year 600 to the year 1000, this is the time period called the Gaonim. Again, so the Amorayim, they, they finished the Talmud. Afterwards of the Sabarayim, they kind of put the finishing edits on the Talmud, although it's a complete work. If Yoel was here, he'd start arguing with me now, because... We're in con- we're, right now we're in a conversation about exactly who wrote the Talmud, when it was t- totally finished. It's a little ambiguous among scholars, among the traditional approach. But what's agreed upon is by the time the Gaonim come around, in the year about 600, they now are in a new phase in Jewish history. We're in a new phase in the, in the, in the, in the halachic uh, unfolding of Jewish history. The Talmud is complete, pretty much not being touched anymore. This is the final word. There's no, no one's making new interpretations of the text. Anything that's not in the Talmud is out. And the Gaonim's job now is to basically give over in interpretations of the Talmud. So we're no longer writing the Talmud, we're interpreting the Talmud. We're giving over the traditions of the Talmud. We're saying, oh, I just quoted you. <laughs> it's a good thing you missed it. No, no, it's a good thing you missed it. Oh. <laughs> So right now, the Gaonim are they're giving over the interpretations, and therefore we're going to see today, they were very, 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 very um, concerned about minhag and concerned about tradition. And no, they're not giving interpretations. They're really saying this is what was done. And because of that, because this is the center of Jewish life, and because they're so concerned with minhag, what happens is, is the, 
Jews who have now started slowly spreading throughout the diaspora, whether you're in Egypt or even some already migrating towards Europe, send letters to the Go'onim asking questions. How do we do this? How do we do that? And these letters end up becoming what known as the Chubis Go'onim. So there's a letter, our sitter. Our sitter is based off the sitter of Amram Go'onim. What happened? Someone sent him a letter and said, well, how do I dab it? What does Daven look like? There are multiple different texts, there's multiple different traditions. So Rav Amram Gom sends a long letter back saying, this is what Tzvila looks like. And that, that text, that, that letter becomes the basis to our modern day Siddur. Again, after many, 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 many evolutions. But again, that's what's happening. So oftentimes the re- responses are quite pithy. It's just like, this, they don't even resp- say what the question was. Like, this is the din, this is the halakha. And then as time goes on, it gets a little longer, but this is exactly exact what happens. Now, for the most part, most of Jewish history, we didn't even have access to these chubas because no one was really keeping record of that. No one, as we mentioned last week, when it, like Moshe Feinstein, when he would send a chuba out, when someone would send him a question, he would respond, he'd keep a copy to himself, which is how we end up with these eight volumes or nine volumes of Igor's Moshe. The Golden more concerned that it was literally almost like a text message. They asked the question of milk inflation, inflation, done. So the way we have the Golden was that over time, people collected, even in the times of Rishon, like the Ravid in the in 1200, collected some of these responsa, and they put them into books. So those kind of filtered throughout, and traditions came down. It wasn't until the Cairo Geniza was discovered. The Cairo Geniza was a shul in Cairo, in Fustat, I believe that's how you pronounce it, which is old Cairo. And basically, because of the climate there, it was able to preserve documents from the old Cairo community, which they basically, it was basically their shameless. So Leonard, before we start throwing our shameless away, the Seamus there went into this room, and I get to, right now modern scholars are a little ambiguous about what exactly took place, but push comes to shove. This room is discovered mainly, or Salman Schechter basically makes it, Salman Schechter from the Salman Schechter schools, he was a scholar, he basically goes into there and brings most of those documents with him to, I believe, Oxford, where the Cairo Geniza, um, they basically actually now digitized everything, and in those documents, what were the documents? There was lots of just records of regular daily life. There was religious records. There's actually a woman who lives in Passaic, New Jersey, who did her doctorate in Chicago, so, you know, kind of feel a little affinity to her. Dr. Krakowski, who's, writing, who's written books about daily life in the times of Gonim and times of Cairo by mining these records. Oh, and divorce records and marriage records and, and all sorts of business records. But among them were all these chuvas where the, the people in Cairo would send letters to the Gonim. Again, think about it. You're going from Egypt all the way to Iraq. And the Golden would respond. And they'd say, well, okay, mutter, usr, maybe a little longer. And that would get then filed away in the Cairo Geniza. So because of that, there's been a whole explosion of Gaonic literature. And Svarim, based off the Gaonim, in the last 50, 60 years. But for the most part, we didn't, we didn't have much. Um, Robert Brody, if you see, if you see on the, the book there, the Gaonim of Avalonian, the Shaping of Medieval Jewish Culture. So he wrote this amazing book, quite expensive. I couldn't actually get a hold of it, but I, online I was able to read some of it. Where he basically writes, this is like, you know, goes through a lot of these documents and puts together what daily life looked like in the times of Gonim. He writes, during the Gonic era of Jewish history, the central academies of Babylonia and Palestine were well established. Hierarchical institutions were at the, uh, whose heads the Gonim filled a good many roles and exerted enormous influence over the entire Jewish world. He says, the word Gaon, what, what was, what's the Gaon? When we think of Gaon, what does Gaon mean? Genius. Genius, brilliant person. So actually, in the times of Gaonim, a Gaon was just the title they gave to the Rosh Hashiva. Called a Gaon. In fact, Rabbi Salvechik once said, just because you lived in the times of the Gaonim doesn't make you a Gaon. Which we can apply to many places. But so the, the Gaonim, they were the heads of the yeshiva, and that's basically what it looked like. 
That brings us to Rav Haigon. Rav Haigon is uh, he, he was born in 19, uh, 939 and died in 1038. When he actually died, is it March 28th? That's true, I don't know. Rav Shrivergon, who, who came before him, who was his father, he wrote a very, very long letter. Someone said to him, like, can you tell us the, what, the history of Torah Shabbat Peh? Because again, they were fighting with the, uh, the Karaites who denied Torah Shabbat Peh. So someone said, tell us the history. Why should we believe in the Mishnah? Why should we believe the Talmud? She writes this long, long epistle, this very long do- document, going through the history of, from the times of the, the Tanaim, the times of the Gemara, going all the way down through the Gaonim. So Rav Hai comes along, who's his son. Hai, by the way, is the Babylonian form of the word Chia. So we know, we know the word Chia from the, um, from the Gemara. He's the final Gaon, and he, if you look at the Rishonim, they, they, they hold of him very, very much. The Ramban has, has his amazing Lashonim, he talks about, you know, Rav Hai Gaon, we can't argue with them. Stam Gaon, if the, if the Torah, the Code of Jewish Law says Gaon. It doesn't say who it is. It's probably Rav Haigon. He exerted enormous, enormous influence on Jewish, on Jewish law. And one of the reasons that is is because the Gaonim, again, they weren't interpreting things themselves. Oftentimes, they're just passing down tradition. So that's Rav Haigon. Um, so Rav Haigon, basically, so that, that's Rav Haigon. Rav Haigon has a truth which I want to do with you today. Second page. He was asked the following question. He was asked a question. We'll get to it in a minute. And that essentially boils down to is, what is the role of Minho? When it clashes with halacha, what is the role when you have a minhag, a custom, and it clashes with law, Jewish law? Jewish law, we assume, is to be the is the be all and end all. It's the way of life, and a custom is a mere custom. So, what do you do when you have this clash? What do you guys think? Minhag Yisrael Torah, right? But at the same time, halacha. Well, halacha has to win out. You would think halacha has to win out. Sure. Uh, what, what happens in American law when you have a, a strong custom and you have a uh, court rules? It's probably based on law. It's law. Based on laws and laws. That's what you would think, right? The law is the law, and that's the way it works. So what wins out? So this is the question he was asked, which we'll get to in a minute. And Anne doesn't get very excited about it because it's a <laughs> about the chauffeur. So you're, you'll, you'll be excited. So first, I want to take a step back and discuss what is minhag. So Professor Chaim Salvechik, or my Salvechik's son who is affectionately known as Dr. Grach. Why Dr. Grach? So the Chaim Salavechik, the, the Rav's grandfather, he was known as the Grach, Goen Rav Chaim. His, his great-grandson is named after him, Chaim Salavechik, lives in Riverdale. And he's a, he has a PhD, so they call him Dr. Grach, Dr. Goen Rav Chaim. That's what we know him in academic circles. So he's a, we've mentioned him last week, we'll probably mention him a lot in this year, he's a historian. So he says as follows, this is source number one. What is a minimum? Before you want to read, anyone want to try to throw out what's a minhag? Something that like a large majority of Jews and Christians are Okay, something people do. Doing it, doing it, because it's something. So then we do. And here's the problem: what if you do something? I don't know. What if every, a community decides every month, fifth Monday in the in the calendar, how do they stand on their head? And they do it and do it, and their kids do it, and their parents are like, "Why do we do it?" Because their father did it. It reminds me of the old story that the there was a, uh, a girl saw her mother cut off. The end of the corn beef. So she says, Why do you do that? She goes, Why did I do that? That's our minimum. You have to do it. My mother did it. My grandmother did it. My great grandmother did it. So they go to the nurse's home. They see the great grandmother. They say, Why do you cut off the end of the corn beef? She goes, I never had a big enough pot for it. <laughs> so again, you're in a very funny territory. You're just saying, That's what my father did. My grandfather did. Any other stat? What's a minute? What role does minute play? A tradition. Again, we're in a funny place. So this is what Dr. Salavichik says. Custom minog has a recognized threefold place in halacha. 
It may adjudicate between two halachic views, as in the custom of Ashkenaz is to follow Tosfos, and that is far to follow the Rambam. Meaning, sometimes we have divergent views, and we'll say, yeah, Minag Ashkenaz. Minag Ashkenaz, where Minag Svar is otherwise. Okay. It may tilt the balance of an issue in which the law is unclear. Sometimes you can have a, a, it's a, an ambiguous halacha. It's not really sure which way or that way. You know, half the rabbis say X, half the rabbis say Y. What do you do? Oh, you go with the minhag. You go with the minhag. That's, we've, we've heard that concept before. They say that a rabbi was traveling in Europe once, and he came across a town. He's there for Shabbos. Comes time for Kabbalah Shabbos. And one guy goes, we stand for Kabbalah Shabbos. And someone else goes, we sit for Kabbalah Shabbos. And they start arguing back and forth, and it comes to blows. They start throwing chairs at each other. So the visiting rabbi turns to the rabbi who's sitting in the corner quietly. He says, well, you're the rabbi. What's the minhag here? He goes, this is the minhag. We throw chairs at each other. So sometimes that when there's halachas ambiguous, so we say, well, what's the custom? And finally, it may determine conduct and interests of halacha, there being no directive in the normative literature of the subject. Meaning sometimes there is no... The halacha doesn't always speak to everything. The halacha speaks to broadly. Much more daily prayer is custom. And such phrases as, in Poland it was customary not to say Avarachim on Shabbos. Other points as Fardin did add it, etc., etc. What categorizes Minah custom in all these three instances is that the practice described are both legitimate and recognized by their practitioners as part of the religious inheritance of the community. Meaning there's a source for it somewhere. One rabbi interpreted it one way, one interpreted it another way. Both of them seem, you know, legitimate. How do you have to, you have to go one way, you have to adjudicate one way, so, these people follow this minog, these, this community is fired, follow that minog. Uh, and then he points out, when it comes to local minog, all Jewish communities are remarkable, tenacious in defending their customs and vindicating their religious traditions, and little distinction can be drawn among d- different Jewish cultures of the Middle Ages or the modern period for that matter. But it's something that's always often pointed out, that after the Holocaust, something we lost was communal minog. Because whole communities were wiped out, and you think about it, like we came to America and no one really knew much, and actually Rabbi Salvatic, Dr. Salvatic has another article on this, so everyone kind of is like, well, what do we do? I don't know Allah. I'm destroyed. Or the community is made up of people from all over Europe. And you know, at this point, you walk into Israel all over the world. You have Svardim and Ashkenazim. So people just start turning to texts. They turn to the Mishnah They turn to the Archa Shulchan and what text they had. And therefore, we kind of all got, you know, Minnig Archibald, they say. We've got a unified tradition, which is a loss. So that's, where, that's the role of Minnig. The question that becomes is, what about a Minhag that clashes with Allah? This is a place for Minnig, clearly, when it's it's trying to adjudicate between, between areas that are ambiguous. But what about when we know there's a clear clash in the law? So there are two approaches. One's going to be your high goings, and one's going to be the other approach. If you look in the Shut Rivash, the Shut, the shut Harush, we'll, we'll do in a couple weeks to rush, he says as follows. Mm-hmm. Source number two. <laughs> Give a minhag. Let's say a minhag developed because we want to prevent people from doing on Shabbos or, or Yom Tif or whatever it may be. We don't want people to, um, to uh, do a sin. We don't want them to end up doing a virus. So we create some sort of preventative measure. Don't change it. All is good and well. What if you do a minhag when there's an avera? I'll give you, I'll throw one out there. We're not going to get into it. We can discuss it one day. Mishnah in, in, in Beitzah, we've discussed, we discussed this actually once with somebody, I think with Yair, Mishnah in Beitzah says, it's also to dance and clap on Shabbos. All of the poskim jump up and down like, well, so what are we doing on Simchas Torah? What are we doing on Simchas Torah? It's a clear minog, a very strong minog, that clashes with Allah. Alright, we'll get there one day. Cliffhanger. <laughs> what do you do though? What do you do when there's a clear minog clash with a clear halacha? 
says the Rosh Yesh Lashanah Taminig, a few Hinnig Gedolim Taminig, even if the great, the greatest, the Gedolim are doing this, change it. The Ain Basin, Mastin, Okra Dovermen Torah, because Basin can't come along and Okra Dovermen Torah. It's nice, Minig Yisrael Torah, but like, Torah is a Torah. We're not going to change the Torah. Um, moreover, what do you have a minute? You create a minute that's there to prevent people from sinning, but ends up having the opposite effect. Also change it. Okay, well, we don't have to do the whole thing there. So basically, what he says is if you have a minute, if you have a minute and it's causing people to sin, abolish it. Rabbi time in a letter, which I couldn't find, I saw it a couple years ago, and I was looking everywhere, I couldn't find it. He says as follows. He was very upset about a certain minute, and it goes like this. I have my little handouts right here. He says, let's see if I can, uh, I need more hands. Sophie, want to help me? Can you hold these two together so everyone can see it? Okay. Can everyone see this? What do, you, what, what do you see right in here? Yeah. Okay, ready? Says Rebbe Thomas follows. I'm, you're not done, so. Ready for this? Hold this. Everyone can see it. Oh, it's sp- spread it out. Spread it out. Now what do you see? Step forward. <laughs> Get ahead of him. Get ahead of him. You can't see back there. Rebbe Thomas says. Thank you, Sophie. The word minog, mem, nun, hey, gimel, minog, also you scramble it, gehenim, gimel, hey, nun, mem. Since the time when he's very upset about a minog, he's like, you think, oh, minog, Israel, Torah, who? Well, the word minog equals gehenim, so be careful. It's Urbana Thompson. He was not in favor of minhagim that did not conform or that directly contradicted halal. However, comes along. Rav Haigon. I mean, obviously, chronologically, we're not in the same place. Rav Haigon says as follows, and this is a letter I want to do with you today. This is in Tumim Day. Is it clear on the sheets? Or I won't do this in the future. Mm-hmm. If you can read it? Okay. <clears throat> Tumim Day is actually, it's a safer written by the Ravid. We collect, when that's, again, before we had the Kairogamizas, the Ravid lived, you know, many, many years, in the 11th, 12th century or so. So, he, he brings this chuva, this chuva from the Rav Haigon again. We had, a, that's how you find the, Source of the Gonim, he had to really mind the mind the the um we're showing him to find source of the Gonim. He has his following question. The question was Shailul Rav Haigon. The answer is follows: Alatikiyosh Hiskin Rav Avahu Rosh Hashanah Shal Rabbeinu Hatzal. They used to blow shofar Rosh Hashanah. We can even say it outside. The minig is or the halach is, excuse me. You have to blow shofar. Now, what's the problem, Andy? Why do we blow so many shofars? We don't know what the tekiyos are. We don't know is it is it short? Is it longer? Is it no tekiyah? We, we know what tekiyah is. A trua, um, trua and the shvara. So what the minute develop is to cover all our bases. We basically do every sort of permutation of of blowing shofar, which is why we make Andy work for his money and we are in shofar so long. We really don't need to do hundred. Now what happened was a minute developed that they would blow shofar. We do it during chazarta shots. And we, what do we do again? We do tekiyah, shvarim teruah tekiyah. Then we do, te, then we do, te, in case that's what it is. Then we do tekiyah, shvarim tekiyah, sorry, teruah tekiyah, in case it's only the teruah. And then we do tekiyah, shvarim tekiyah. This way we have every permutation in case it's both of them or it's only one of them or either one, we're all covered. However, the minog, apparently in the times of Rabbi Haigon was, 
for Malchos, they would only blow, they blow Tekiya, Shvarim, Teruah, Tekiya. For Shofros, they'd only blow Tekiya, Teruah, Tekiya. And for Zechronos, I went out of order there, they would blow, okay, whatever the order exactly is, they'd blow Tekiya, Shvarim, Teruah. So the question is as follows. If you believe we're trying to cover all our bases here, meaning there's one correct way to do it, the other ways are wrong, but we don't know what it is, so we're basically, instead of hedging our bets, we're just going to do them all. So then why would we only do one permutation of this for each one? We should do what we do, but actually nowadays is to go through all 30 colos for Malchus, Rehonis, and Chofros. That is the question asked for Pagel. Uh, he, he, um, we're, we're, we're doing it today in what's the question again? The, the question time of Pagel okay. was they, they would only they would do, first would be Tekiya, Teruah, uh, Shvarm, Tekiya. Next would be Tekiya, Teruah, Tekiya. Next would be Tekiya, Shvarm, Teruah. But they wouldn't do them all together. Which means you're going to end up having, there's a, clearly there's a halachi you have to have a shofar being blown for each malchus or chonus and shofros, but they would only blow one permutation of, of the blowing for each one, which means that you're basically hedging your bets. Hopefully that's the right one. But it clearly means the other one, you're not going to be yotze. Right? That clear? Mm-hmm. Okay. Says the What did they do before chonus? What? What did they blow before I actually think if you look at it carefully, they were blowing it during the, the private shwan answer. That, that was all the case they did. They did it separate. So I'm not sure. It seems like he believes there's a separate din. It seems like there's a separate din. He's he's more concerned about the din. Again, I was I was I was thinking that too. They, either they didn't blow, or there was some sort of special din to blow during during Sarzajats, or that's what it was. But here, this is what he says. And this is why it's so important. Right? It's a clear clash. We have a clear clash here. Halach is you got to blow a chauffeur. Here it's like we may be blowing chauffeur. The minute it maybe you blow a chauffeur. Maybe we're not blowing chauffeur because maybe we're just no, we're basically tooting a, a trumpet. So it's that's. Clear clash. What happens? So if you're if you are a bit of time, what are you probably going to say? Gehenim. Like no. If you're the rush, abolish it. If I go, however, they said the goon were very, 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 very intimate hugging, which is by the way one of the reasons. In the way it works in halacha is generally we don't argue with people that came way before. So the, the, it's broken down. We have the tanayim, we have the amarayim, um, <coughs> then we have around that funny period we have the goonim, rishonim, and achronim. Right? Which we're going to see, we're, that's, that's going to develop over time. Very, Achronim are very reticent, most Achronim, to argue on Rishonim. So if you came after you about 1500, you're not going to find people often arguing with people with Rishonim. Again, because the assumption is people live before you, closer to the tradition, had, a, had stronger sources. The Rishonim often won't argue with Gaonim. Not on principle as much as they say the Gaonim came from the Spisora. They didn't want to change the Spisora, they didn't want to change the Minhag. So the Chorah, if they if they saying something, it's because they have, that's the tradition, and that's perhaps the best approach. Again, they will argue, but they, they but they will they will argue less because of that. Goonim will never argue on Amorim, <coughs> never. Chasim is a Talmud. Once the Talmud was concluded, you don't find anything. They all don't get too excited, and then the Amorim won't outright argue with Tanai. Okay, and obviously no one, no Achim will argue with the Tanai. If you find anyone arguing with an explicit Gemara, you know they probably are not a good rabbi. Check their smicha, and if they have smicha, revoke it. Okay. Chuba. So says says Rav Haigon. Kizeh haTorah haGodel b'Davarzeh. In Atin Tzrichin ki Adavarz in Yotzi b'Day. I got to change up my own reading. Chovaseinu v'Osin bo Ratzon Yotzrinu Nachonu Ubar b'Adena Yerusha Mishlash Atika Mekabelos b'Kabalam Avas Avon b'Davarz b'Tufin. He says as follows. It is the will of our Creator to continue saying in English and bottom follow along. That this is correct, and this is tr- and this is tr- clear to us, because there's a threefold inheritance, faithfully copied and transmitted from father to son, generation after generation in Israel. 
No, we'll read it all in English because I cannot read my, <laughs> this, this uh, fancy thing I tried to do. The law has spread throughout Israel, and since we conduct ourselves in this matter, is correct and, and a law to Moshe at Sinai. That we fulfilled our obligation, that any objection has already been removed. It says Rabbi Gohan, and this is fascinating. He says, although we, we can say there's a clear clash with halacha, we have a Mesopah. We have a minog. And he goes, the minog came from our fathers, came from their fathers, it came, ultimately came from Harsinah. Now, I don't know he necessarily thinks this minog came from Harsinah, but what he's trying to say is, when you have a minog from your fathers, don't get so, don't get so, you know, polemical. Don't get so, you know, uh, excited to protest. Oh, minog, Gehenna. No, 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 no. Minog, not Gehenna. Minog, Yishol Torah, he said. There's something there. He goes on to say, moreover, where do we get, well, how do we know we have a blow chauffeur? It's the same tradition. Of our fathers and grandfathers and teachers have said to us, blow shofar is also saying, this is how you do it. So the Rabbi Gohan takes a step back for a second and goes, don't get overly excited that you want to change things because you came home from Israel and you're all from now and you pull out of Mishnaburah and say you're wrong. That's not how it works. The same Mishnaburah that we have that tells us, this is, this is how we blow shofar, this is why we blow shofar, this is how we blow shofar. And therefore Rabbi Gohan says, when a community set, uh, says serves a proof for the entire Mishnah, what the community says serves as a proof for the entire Mishnah and the entire Gemara. It's the last paragraph. More than any other proof, go out and see what the people are doing. More than any other proof, go out and see what the people are doing, which the Gemara will see in a minute. This is the essence and the basis. Only afterwards we consider all that was said in the Mishnah or the Gemara concerning the matter. Meaning, if you are adjudicating law, what do you do? Go see what is done, and then go see if it conforms with the text. Don't see the text and then say, oh, change what you're doing, but rather... Minog, whether the Hasidim, they're much, they're much, much more um, in line with this, I would say. Much more in line with this. It how, if whatever follows from them can be reconciled with our established practice, fine. Right? Notice what's coming first, chicken and the egg here. If the practice we're doing can be reconciled with the Mishnah, all is good and well. If they contain anything that does not match with what is in our hearts, which is what is in our hearts, which is called Minog, it cannot be clarified with proof, it will not override the essential Wow. If the minute is so strong, we have a minute so strong that if it doesn't conform with the Gemara and the Mishnah, says Rabbi Gom, okay, so it's probably you just don't know enough. Probably you just don't know how to read it in enough. But the same Mesorah, the same Mesorah that tells us this is how this is blow chauffeur, is telling us this is how you blow chauffeur. Now, there are those who will use this to basically say, basically say, okay, minute follow everything and get rid of the Gemara and Mishnah almost. He's not saying that far. He's not saying that far. He would, obviously, we can trace something back to Mishnah's. We say, you know, it, it really going back to every other Monday, you have to stand on your head. He's not going to say that. And I think just to unpack a little bit, in the next five minutes, I want to sh- show you where he's coming from. Gemara Psachim asked the following. If you look down, it's source number four, but we'll skip the Gemara, we'll get down. The Gemara is basically discussing car- bringing the carbon Pesach on Shabbos. That one year, they're trying to remember, do we, are we allowed to bring the sacrifice, the carbon Pesach, on Shabbos? Because so, slaughtering an animal, that's not Isra Malach. The Arab Shabbos, um, Arab Pesach falls on Arab Shabbos. You have to bring the carbon. What do you do? So basically, Hillel comes up and Hillel tells them you're allowed to do it. And here's the following reason why. So the leaders see this man Hillel coming up again. Where's he coming from? He's coming from Babel. He comes up. They say, "Oh, you know this? We did it." And they basically take off their their rabbinic hats and they put it on Hillel and say, "You're now the new leader," which is like show of humility. Then this, the following thing happened. They said to him, "Okay, fine. So you, we know you're allowed to shaft an animal on Shabbos, but what about the knife?" How do we get the knife to the base of Middash? The knife is in our house. Going, traveling to the base of Middash is going in Rosh Hashanah and they didn't have an Erev, unlike our beautiful Erev, which I'm going to walk around today. So if you see me tomorrow looking very thin, it's because I had to walk four miles. Um, what do you do? 
And Hill didn't know. So what did he say? Go out and cease. He says, he says, Ella, he said, go out and see what are the Jewish people doing? Because if they're not prophets themselves, they're the children of prophets, i.e., they have a tradition from their ancestors. Fine. And then the Gemara says they went outside, they saw all the Jews, these simple Jews, they didn't know any much halacha, were just doing what their fathers told them, would take the knife and they put it in the horns of the carbon and the, car, and the animal would walk it. That there's this concept of Minigus Raltor, who may Nevi'im Hain, B'nai Nevi'im Hain. Lapianti points out again, he says, it doesn't mean everything people do. He says it means as follows, he gives the following analogy, because imagine you have a, a young guy, he goes to Morton or Harvard, gets an MBA, he knows all the theory, he shows up in the company. And there's a man there, the CEO, who's been in business for 50 years. And the CEO says, here's the following business strategy we're going to do for the ne this next, you know, here's my proposal, the business strategy we're going to do for the next year or so. And the guy gets up and says, yelling at him, what do you mean? I, when I was in Harvard, I learned this idea, and I learned that idea, and you're, you got to do it this way and that way. And the guy, like, what, what are your sources? And the guy looks at him and just says, what? 50 years of business. I have, you know, 50 years of business, you develop an intuition. It's not just, oh, I'm you know, shooting from the hip. After 50 years of, of business, you develop an intuition. Says Rabbi Obiansky, that's essentially what's happening here. It's not everything. But when you find someone who's, who's spent enough time you know, learning and absorbing the tradition, you gain a certain intuition. You gain a certain a, a certain feeling, a hargasha. This is the way things are supposed to be. So when we say what we're saying is that over time we can develop a certain intuition that maybe something seems off here. Maybe the halacha seems to clash a little bit with the minhag, but it gives a certain feeling that this is the way it's supposed to be. This is the way it's supposed to be. And that's what Rav Haibon is talking about. That That when the minute clashes with the halacha, sometimes you get a certain intuition, like the same Torah, the same tradition I have that teaches me the Torah, teaches me the minute as well. And lastly, I want to conclude with this Yadal Yoh, which I thought was a, a, another fascinating idea. So that's again, that's for Pythone. Yadal Yoh, he says as follows. He named Harimvur Alonim. This is again, comes back, because it still it bothered me a little bit. Like at the end of the day, you have a halacha and you have a minute. Intuition, you can talk about intuition all you want, but it's, it's ambiguous. It's hard, it's amorphous. It's hard to pin down. And, and, and also, if you can really trace it back, like, halacha. So he says as follows. All ubiquitous, across Kalal Yisrael, everyone is doing it. There's a certain tziyat, the shmai, there's a certain ruach hakodesh, a certain spirit that comes from on high. That Hashem basically said, allows to happen. Hashkach, we believe in divine providence. It's not just in our daily life, it's also in the way halacha unfolds. It's not an accident if all of Klai Yisrael does something. So even though you can say, oh, no, but I know there's a source, and I, I heard some academic tell me that the, historically the reason it's developed is because X, Y, and Z. No, 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 no. Klai Yisrael is doing something. Ubiquitous. Everywhere you turn, there's a reason that is. It's a spiritual reason. Not just because it developed the way historically. It's almost as if a nobi gets up there. Right, the prophet gets up and goes, God told me X, Y, or Z, so we know that's what God wanted. If Kali Yisrael is doing something collectively, maybe you could say, Simchas Torah. Everywhere you go, everyone is doing it. Api Ruch HaKodesh. There's a certain, it's as if Hashem himself came down and said, this is what you're doing. It's as if Hashem again said, came down and said, this is ubiquitous, everyone's doing it because this is what I want.
to recognize it also in this discussion. We have to always remember, and especially as we go through the next couple of months, seeing how halacha is unfolding. It's not just a process between humans, but Hashem's involved as well. The same way, again, we believe Hashem's in history. Hashem orchestrates history. We look at 1948. How did that happen? Yes, we can point to this military victory and that thing that happened politically, but HaKadosh Baruch is behind it. So Hashem's behind the halacha for sure as well. In the way in which we practice, in the way in which we do things, even though sometimes it doesn't seem to conform with the sources, but when everyone is doing it, then we say, Siyat Dishman. Hashem was there. Hashem did it as well. Okay, everyone should have a wonderful day, a wonderful week.